Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Acts chapter 1. We're going to cover verses 13 through 25 to the end of the chapter. We're going to talk about how the disciples picked a replacement for the traitor Judas, how they chose Matthias. The first part of the chapter, verses 1 through 12, dealt with the ascension. That portion tied the book of Luke with the book of Acts. The apostles watched Jesus ascend into heaven, and now they turn back to the earth, back to Jerusalem, to choose another apostle so that they can establish the church of Jesus Christ as they wait for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, to fall on them. We will start with verse 13. In Acts chapter 1, And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Now this is one of the three lists of the twelve apostles, and it's controversial as how the lists are reconciled. This is how I do it. This is a pretty standard way of doing it, actually. First of all, Peter, John, and James, that's John and James, the son of Zebedee. Those are the favorite three, the favorite three apostles of Jesus, the, the inner circle, if you will. Bartholomew is probably the same person that John calls Nathaniel, or Nathaniel, in John chapter 1, verses 45 through 49. This is the NIV Study Bible's opinion. I think that's probably right. And then there's James, the son of Alphaeus who is the same as James the Younger, according to the NIV Study Bible, in Mark 15:40, And then we have Judas the, same of Je- Judas, the son of James. That's not Judas Iscariot. That's the same as Thaddeus, according to the NIV Study Bible. Thaddeus is listed in the other two lists of the apostles, Matthew 10, 3, and Mark 3, 18. At any rate, this is basically your 12 apostles minus Judas. So it's 11 apostles. They went into an upper room. People speculate as to what that upper room is. Basically, it's unknown, really, where it is. So, the NIV Study Bible speculates it could be the home of Mary, the mother of Mark. They both lived in Jerusalem. And the home of Mary may have been where the Last Supper was held, according to the NIV Study Bible. And Mary, the mother of Mark, was a favorite gathering place for Christians, as we'll see later on in Acts chapter 12. So that's where the upper room could have been, in Mary's house, the mother, mother of Mark. It could have been where the Last Supper was held. If that was not where Mary lives, Mary and Mark lives, it could have been somewhere else. And that could have been where the disciples retired to here to choose Matthias. It could have been the house of John the Evangelist. Remember, Jesus on the cross said, John, take care of my mother. And John had taken Jesus' mother into the city. So that could be where they were. could be the house of Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin who loved Jesus, or it could be Joseph of Arimathea, another member of the Sanhedrin who loved Jesus. It could have been one of their two houses, or it could have been a room in the temple, which I don't know. That seems kind of strange to me to be staying in the temple. John Gill said this is most likely, and Adam Clark says it's probable but not certain, so maybe so. But at any rate, and it doesn't really matter, this is the famous upper room. We'll just call it the upper room. We go to verse uh, 14. Acts 1.14, all these, all these apostles, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women in Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. What were they doing in that upper room? They were praying, waiting for the promise of the Father from on high. They were with the women. What women? Here are some options. The NIV Study Bible says the wives of the apostles. Well, that could be. NIV Study Bible gives another option. Those listed as ministering to Jesus, which we just call the women, 
There, for example, in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-five, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. So all the way down from Galilee to the cross, there were women who were witnessing, uh, who were uh, ministering to Jesus, helping him out. In fact, in one place it says, in fact, this verse right here, I'm going to read to you. It shows that they actually gave financial support to the apostles. Luke 8, verses 2 through 3. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. These are the women that were accompanying Jesus and the twelve earlier in the Galilean ministry. Some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna. This is a, a mention of these women when they were up in Galilee. Some of these women were also mentioned in the crucifixion narratives, too, in the Gospels. So they were there. They had left. They were still around. They were in that upper room along with the apostles and Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is the last time we ever see Mary. She's here praying for the promise of the Spirit. And Jesus' brothers were there. Which of his brothers were there? Well, we don't know. It doesn't say James was probably there. He later became one of the chief elders of the Jerusalem church. In Acts 12, verse 17, we read this. There were also many, but, excuse me, Acts 12, verse 17, but motioning to them, this is people in Mary's house, the mother of Mark's house, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he, Peter, described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers, so Peter mentions James as being prominent, a prominent one of the brothers. And we also read in Acts 15:13 after they finished speaking, this is at the Jerusalem Council. James replied, brothers, listen to me. So James is a leading brother at the Jerusalem Council. He gave the final result. So we see that James, the brother of Jesus, is now one of the leading pillars of the church of Jerusalem. In fact, he's mentioned as a pillar in Galatians 2.9. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, that's James and Cephas as Peter, James, Peter, and John, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All right, so we can assume that James was there, the brother of the Lord. And the other brothers too, because it says his brother is plural. So, here we see that the brothers, who of course, as we know from the Gospels, did not believe in Jesus at first. Something's happened, and now they believe in Jesus. At least some of his brothers believe in Jesus. Now they were with one accord. There was no division. One accord. Verse 15, Acts chapter 1. In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said... Before we see what Peter said, let's look at this 120. Well, we already know that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there, and Jesus' brothers were there, and the 12 apostles were there. Well, that doesn't nearly come up to 120. Well, it probably also includes the 70 apostles who were sent out, the 70 disciples, I should say, who were sent out during the Perean ministry to spread the word. As Jesus went around preaching, they went around preaching too. So we got the women the apostles, the 70 disciples, the brothers of Jesus, and there were probably some other disciples too that were not in those aforementioned categories. 120 believers in Jesus there in the upper room. Now, why did Peter stand up and give his little speech? Why was he in charge, if you will? As John Gill points out, he was typically a forward person. He was very impetuous, impetuous to the point of being rash, actually. 
He had been used to be the first mover and actor in any affair, as John Gill puts it. And so he's standing up and he's going to start talking about, hey, we've got to find another apostle to replace Judas. It could be he took charge because he wanted to show his zeal for Christ because he had just denied Christ three times just shortly before. By the way, where are we now? This is before Pentecost, which was 50 days after the resurrection, and after the the ascension, which was 40 days after the resurrection. So it was someday between day 40 and day 50 after the resurrection. And so Peter had died, denied Jesus about 40, about 40 days earlier at, at the Last Supper. And so he very well might have been saying, look, I'm sorry I did that. We need to move forward. I'm in charge here. We need to find us another apostle. As I said, Mary is never mentioned again. It's unknown how long she lived after this. It is kind of strange that the mother of Jesus would just disappear with no mention anywhere else about how she died or where she went. It's kind of a shame, really. Catholic Church has sure kept her memory alive. Acts, oh, before I go on to the next verse, let's talk about this number 120. Some people say that it was significant that it was 120 because this was the number required to have a Sanhedrin, a council. John Gill and Adam Clark both point that out. The disciples probably had the intention to form a council, say Gill and Clark, a Sanhedrin, so that they could elect Judas' successor, because that's the way Jews did things back then. There's a problem with this, in my opinion. Those 120 included women, and women weren't allowed in a Sanhedrin. Now, here's some options to solve that problem. Perhaps Peter was speaking only to the men, so there were 120 men there plus the women. Well, I don't think that's likely, because verse 14 just mentioned the women. And you would think they'd be included in that 120. And you say, yeah, but the verb is the word is brothers here. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, so that means it just means the men. So they were 120 men. Ah, but the problem with that is the word for brothers, which is the genitive here, is adelphone. Adelphone, that means men and women. It technically, mean, technically means siblings. I've looked that up in a different context studying 1 Corinthians 11, as a matter of fact, and it's no question about it. It means brothers and sisters, too. So when you say the brethren, that means the brethren and the sister, as they say. So you can't prove that it was just men that Peter was talking to. You can't say that it was just men because 120 people made up a Sanhedrin, 120 men made up a Sanhedrin, because it doesn't say that. Doesn't say that. That's just a speculation. And you can't say it's just men because of the word brothers, because that's not what the Greek means. So it could be just a coincidence. He stood up and there was 120 men and women there and that there was no intent to form a Sanhedrin. And I probably think that's the answer. Acts chapter 1, verse 16. Peter's talking to his brethren, whoever they were, brothers and sisters. He says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He became a guide to those who arrested Jesus because he walked right there to the Garden of Gethsemane pointing out where he was because he knew that Jesus retired there a lot. Now, notice that the scripture was fulfilled by what Judas did. We'll talk about that scripture in a minute as to what scripture it was. But the scripture that was fulfilled was written by the Holy Spirit, was spoken by the Holy Spirit because this verse says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. So Luke is saying here that those psalms that were written by David, those psalms were spoken by the Holy Spirit. So that is a clear indication of the inspiration of the Spirit of Christ. Now, and also the implied in that is the inerrancy of the Scripture, 
the scriptures because the Holy Spirit don't sponsor no errors. All right, well, what scripture was Peter referring to? Later on, it tells us in verse 20, so I'll just hop down there and, and get those verses. Psalm 69:25 says, May his place be deserted, let, those, let there be no one to dwell in it. That is the NIV translation, and that translation clearly would apply to Judas. May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. In other words, let him live in a desert for what he did. The ESV translation, which I'll give you in a minute, doesn't really come across that way, but the NIV does. Psalm 109.8, may his days be few, may another take his office. Well, that fits Judas pretty good. He hung himself, his days were few, he died at a young age, and now another is going to take his office, another that they're about to choose, turned out to be Matthias. Now, how did Peter know these psalms? It could be that Jesus actually had pointed out that those psalms were fulfilled in Judas. Jesus had talked to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and beginning with all of with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to those disciples what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. And then, of course, those apostles on Resurrection Sunday night went and saw the other apostles, including Peter, and they could have relayed that to him. Say, look at here, Judas died, this fulfilled the Psalms. That's all speculation. It's reasonable speculation, but we don't know. Or Peter just might have known the scriptures himself. You know, after he could have been he could have been inspired by the Holy Spirit to know what scripture was being fulfilled. But at any rate, it doesn't matter. He did know those scriptures, and he's, and he's quoting the scripture. And again, fulfillment of scripture is much more important to the New Testament writers than it seems to be to modern Christians today, in my opinion. It's very important to show how scriptures are fulfilled. Let's go to verses 17 and 18. For he, that's Judas, was numbered among us. He was one of the twelve apostles. And was allotted his share in this ministry. That was his job. Take care of the money bag which he stole from <laughs> i don't know what else he did verse 18 now this man this man judas now this man now we're in a parenthesis here this is luke when peter's not speaking anymore and we're and and luke is given a parenthesis for the reader of his book he's explaining what happened to judas peter didn't need to talk about what happened to judas they all knew what happened to judas that it just happened so this is luke telling his readers what happened to Judas? That In verse 18, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Now he acquired the field, but he only did it indirectly because he paid the 30 pieces of silver. He took the 30 pieces of silver that were given to him to betray Jesus, and he threw it back in the temple and said, I don't want this blood money, and threw it at the priest. And the priest said, well, we can't take this blood money and put it in the temple. That would be some kind of a sacrilege. They don't mind killing Jesus and murdering the Son of God. But by golly, they're not going to put any money, any blood money in the temple temple treasury so they went out and bought a potter's field a pauper's field for burial of foreigners who didn't have any place to be buried probably poor people too and so luke skips all that he just says this man acquired a field he acquired it by throwing the money to the priest the high priest the, the jewish leaders and then they went out and bought a field so that's how he acquired the field with the reward of his wickedness with his 30 pieces of silver and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out now the question is is in one place it says he was hanged, and here it says his bowels burst out. Well, what happened was he ran and hung himself, and then either he fell from his noose or burst his body burst apart, and half of his body fell down and hit the ground. Some people translate that verb bursting open in the middle as being pierced, being impaled, and so maybe he fell and was impaled on a rock or something. 
And it doesn't actually say this happened in the potter's field, but it's a reasonable speculation to think that Judas realized he's not going to get a proper burial in anybody's proper tomb. That's not going to happen. He's a traitor. And so he probably just said, I'm going to have to be buried here with all the other outcasts, so I'm going to go die there so they won't have to carry me too far to my grave. But at any rate, Judas killed himself. It could be that Judas had intended to buy the field before the priest did. But because of the, his guilt, didn't want to go through the purpose, purchase, and so he threw his 30 pieces of silver to the priest. And the, and the priest, knew, knowing that Judas was going out to buy that field, said, okay, well, let's just go ahead and complete the purchase for him. And that way, this whole thing will be off our hands. That could be. That's Adam Clark's speculation. And John Gill's speculation, too. I don't know. I think it makes more sense just to say the priest didn't want to put the money in the treasury because it... That blood money somehow offended their religious sensibilities. All right, Judas fell headlong in that field. We know from Matthew 27, 5, that Judas hung himself. Verse 5, Matthew 27. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, he went and hanged himself. And of course, you've got a harmonization issue here. How could he hang himself and burst headlong in the field? Well, it's because he hung himself and then his body broke and, and, and his guts fell out into the field. I think that's the easiest way to say it. We go to verse 19 in chapter 1. And it became known, we're still in the parenthesis, this is still Luke explaining to his readers what happened to Judas. This is not Peter speaking to the 120 in the upper room. Verse 19, And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Akeldama is Aramaic, which translated into the Greek and then into the English for us, means field of blood. Options as to why it's called the field of blood? Well, because the field was purchased with blood money. That's option one. Or option two, because Judas's blood was spilt there when he hung himself and his gut spilled out. Well, remember, it doesn't actually say he hung himself in the potter's field. That's a speculation. We do know that the field was purchased with blood money. That's not a speculation. So I tend to go with that option. That's why they call it the field of blood. It's because the priest bought it with Judas's Blood money, his betrayal money. Verse 20 of Acts 1. This is Peter now. He's, we're going back to Peter speaking to the 120. In fact, I'm going to go back and pick up in verse 17 the last thing he said. So we'll get the context. Peter is saying this to the 120. For he, Judas, was numbered among us and allotted his share in this ministry. Drop down to verse 20. Peter continues, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Now that's the English Standard Version, and that first psalm, which is Psalm 69:25, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. That doesn't really sound like it applies to Judas too much. His camp becomes desolate, I guess it means that everybody's left him, nobody's living with him, and nobody's associating with him. So that might apply to Judas okay, but I like the NIV translation, which says, May his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. That kind of sounds more like Judas. Either way, it's okay, but I, I like that translation a little bit better. And the other psalm that was quoted is Psalm 109.8. May his days be few. May another take his office. Well, Judas's days were few. He was killed prematurely by his, by his own hand. And another took his office. That's going to be Matthias in just a minute. So those psalms are pretty apropos to the situation here, and Peter's explaining what he's explaining how the scripture is fulfilled. And it's interesting, you know, the people already knew what happened to Judas. He didn't have to say this. He was just saying as a prelude to a, 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 a appointing Matthias, 
He was saying, hey, guys, the scripture was fulfilled. All this is in God's plan. To me, it would be kind of exciting to see all this. Acts 1, verses 21 through 22. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. You notice that one of the purposes of fulfilling that apostle slot was to find a witness to the resurrection. As in the book of John, the scripture writers are extremely concerned to point out the evidence that everything they're saying is true. It can be cross-examined. You can, go, you can go examine the witnesses and ask them questions. This thing was not done in a corner. Everybody knew there was many, 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 many people that knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. And, and, and the, Peter and the other apostles are looking for such a person so that he could be a good witness to the resurrection. Now notice, it says, so one of the men, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. He pointed to the men in the assembly, whether they were 120 or less than 120. Peter says, one of these men one of these M-E-N of the male gender must become a witness to the resurrection. Now, I wonder why women were not included as possibilities. There's no ambiguity about that word, men. That is human beings with cojones. I mean, that's men. Uh, gee, feminists, could you maybe answer me on that one? You know, you always talk about how women are qualified to lead. Women are qualified to be elders just like men are. You you blur the distinctions between the genders in order to fulfill your desire to lead, to lead, to lead. And you tell us that there are women elders and women elders in the church. And then you tell us all about Junius or Junia, you call her, him. I'm sure it's a him. But you make a case that there's one female apostle. Well, that case is weak, by the way. I'm not going to get into it here. But... Here, when they're picking the first 12 disciples, why did Jesus pick men? There was a bunch of women there he could have picked. There were women that were faithful, that had been witnesses of him, that had traveled with him all through Galilee, had stuck with him during the crucifixion. In fact, the first person who saw Jesus resurrected from the grave was a woman, Mary Magdalene. He could have picked her, but he didn't do it. Now, why do you think that is? Well, I'm sure you're saying that's because back then it would have been a scandal to have the women leading. Well... It would have been a scandal maybe to have them following around Jesus and 12 men, you know. That doesn't look, that, that looks like a me too moment about to happen. That could have hurt somebody's reputation. So my point is, Jesus was not afraid to create a scandal if he needed to create a scandal. He could have appointed a woman, created a scandal, he wouldn't have cared. Everywhere he went was a scandal. His whole ministry was a scandal. But he didn't pick women, and that's not the reason the reason is not because he was afraid of a scandal. The reason is because he wanted men to lead his church. But Jesus didn't pick women. He picked men. He expected men to lead. As you might be able to tell, I don't like feminism too much. I am a complementarian and doggone proud of it. Let me read a quote from John Gill. It was highly proper that this chore should be of one among the men and not the women, whom it did not become to bear any office and exercise any authority in the church Hence, it is said of these men to the exclusion of women. My sentiments exactly. And you can call me a reactionary all you want. I know, however, how to read the Bible. And progressives and egalitarians and liberals and screwed up new evangelicals, wussy puss evangelicals, you do not know how to read the Bible. Well, now that I've got that off my chest, let's look at a few little details before we move on. 
So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that Lord Jesus went in and out among us, in and out refers to everyday activities. In other words, they were with him all the time, not just at a, at a meeting once, but they lived with him, basically. All right, so people who were in and out with Jesus, in other words, living, in his, living their daily lives and carrying out their daily activities with Jesus, all the time, that means that they were with Jesus all the way from the beginning. It says, right, in fact, it says right here in verse 22, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, till he was resurrected, till he ascended. In other words, through that whole three and a half year period, why did they want somebody like that? Because they didn't want a newbie. This is a critical time, a critical place, the establishment of the church. The Holy Spirit hadn't fallen yet. They wanted somebody with experience. And so they got it. Now, let me make a comment once more about this requirement that the substitute for Judas should have been ministering with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry, from the baptism of John to the end, all the time. Some people universalize that command and say, if you're going to be an apostle of Christ today, you will have to have been with him from the beginning, from John the Baptist to the end. Therefore, nobody can fulfill those requirements. Therefore, there are no apostles today. You this. Is what cessationist kind of and it's, this is a cessationist type of argument, and the short answer to that is well in that case Paul the apostle didn't qualify to be an apostle either because he wasn't with Jesus all the time from the beginning from the time of John baptism of John the Baptist until the ascension, he wasn't even a believer much less a disciple and yet he qualified to be an apostle. No, this is just for the original twelve. That's the qualification for the original twelve apostles not for the subsequent ministry apostles like Paul, like Timothy, and so forth. And like people today, we call them missionaries because we don't want to get involved with theological controversies, but it's the same word, missionary, church planners. They exist today, folks. We need them. Now, why did they want 12, a new 12th apostles? Well, that number 12 was important. It was important for God's plan in the long run, as John Gill says. It was important to keep Old Testament and New Testament symbolism intact. Remember, there were 12 tribes of Israel. You go, and that's the old Israel. You go to the new Israel, the capital of which is the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21:12. There, John mentions 12 gates of the new Jerusalem. And then in Revelation 21:14, 12 foundation stones of the new Jerusalem. And doggone if I can remember which one refers to which. One of them refers to the 12 tribes of Israel. One refers to the founding apostles of the church. And so you see 12 is important. And so that's why they needed to pick a substitute for for Judas. Now let me make a point about the King James. I normally don't use the King James. But the King James has something here that's a no-no. Here's Acts 1.22 in the King James Version. Beginning from the baptism of John until the same day that he was taken up from us. Must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection? That word ordained is not in the original Greek, as Adam Clark points out. They didn't stretch forth their hands like Paul told Titus to do, all the churches in Crete, you know, stretch forth your hands and choose a new elder. Or that's what that's how they translate the word ordained. There was no setting in order. There was no. They just chose them. By lot, as we'll see in just a minute, there was no laying on of hands. There was no ordination. That is a King James ecclesiastical addition to the Greek manuscript, and I don't like that. I don't think Bible translators ought to be doing that kind of thing. It's not in the original Greek. All right, now we go to verse 23 of Acts chapter 1. And they, that means the whole 120 of the people there, 
You notice it was not Peter that nominated these two. It was the whole 120. There's an example of consensual decision-making, which was done all through the early church. It was not the pastor telling the church what to do. Oh, I've heard from God. This is what all you guys need to do. No. 120 people. I'm sure they prayed about it. said they were praying before all this stuff happened. I'm sure they prayed. They, the 120, put forward two and did Peter pick one of those two? No, they went by lot. So it was a two-stage process. They nominated two, they being the 120. I don't know how they did it, but somehow they talked amongst themselves and figured out. They said, let's, 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 let's nominate Joseph called Bersabbath, who's also called Justice, and let's nominate Matthias. And we don't know who these guys are. They were with Jesus from the very beginning, obviously, because that was one of the requirements that Peter had put forward. And they were then chosen by Lot, not by Peter. The other guy was Matthias. Barsabbas means son of the Sabbath. So Joseph, son of the Sabbath, also called Justice, all kind of names. We don't know any more about him. He lost. Matthias won. Now there's a question. I, I just mentioned that the, all the 120 chose these two. And the, query, the question arises, well, what about the women present? Did they have a say in this? Folks, I don't have a problem with that. As long as they're not leading the church, as long as they're not teaching and preaching exercise and authority over men, this was not really a church meeting. It was a special meeting. It was an apostolic meeting. And they might have put their two cents in as they came to a consensual decision about these two. I really don't have any problem with that. You can't prove it either way, so it's not worth make being dogmatic about it. Now, this Joseph called Barsabbath, also called Justice, the first nominee, and Matthias, the second nominee, they were probably of the 70 disciples, the 70 who had been entrusted to spread the gospel all during Jesus' Perean ministry right up there near to the last, and these two probably have stood out in their work. This shows that some disciples do better work than others. That's just no way to get around that. There's always leadership. You can't get rid of leadership, and if you think you can, you might as well get rid of humanity. So we need to recognize leadership and put it where leadership where it belongs. Of course, we assume the leadership is servant leadership, humble leadership. All right, then once they got the two, apparently, or maybe because the 11 disciples couldn't decide between the two, they, they said, ah, should we get Joseph for Sabbath justice, or should we get Matthias? I don't really know. So then they went to the lot. Now, this lot thing is controversial. This idea that they resorted to the lot as a last resort, that, that comes from Adam Clark. It could be they just got the two nominees and went straight to the lot. I don't know. Well, let's move on and discuss and, and see about that. Acts 1, verses 24 through 25 says this, And they, that means the 120, they prayed, the 120 in the upper room, they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Now, you see, before they pulled the lots, they prayed to the Lord. They acknowledged that he knew the hearts of everybody, so he knew the best choice. And then they say, you show us which one. You use this lot to do your will. So, they weren't just gambling. They weren't just using random chance. They turned the lot over to the Lord so that the proper decision might be made. And by the way, Lord, when it's used by itself in the New Testament, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, always means Jesus, not God the Father. Almost, universally, not always, but most of the time. Now, this choice, who ends up being Matthias, he's going to take the place of Judas, who has turned aside to go to his own place. What does it mean to go to his own place? Here's some options. Hell. 
Jesus turned aside to go to his own hell, to go go to where he belongs, hell. And this is John Gill's idea, and he says that the Jews often use this to describe hell, that place, hell. I think that's probably what it is. Jesus tur- Judas turned aside and went to hell. Another option, it only re- the clause refers to only Matthias because it refers to the word one and not Judas. In other words, let me read it that way. Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these you have chosen to go to his own place, and the own place would be the place of ministry and apostleship. So, Lord, show us which one you have chosen to go to his own place of ministry and apostleship, referring to Matthias. That's a stretch. However, John Gill and Adam Clark mentioned that, so scholars must have thought about that being a correct option. Another option, option C, Judas went to his own place. He went to the field, purchased for 30 pieces of silver where he hanged himself. That's reasonable, Adam Clark. Option number four, go to his own place. Judas went to his former house and occupation. Well, I don't know when he did that. This is Adam Clark's idea, but I don't know when Judas had a chance to do that. I guess during that last Passion Week he could have done that, but I don't think that's the proper solution. Or when it says Judas went and turned aside to go to his own place, it's talking about going to death, going to die in general, with no reference to rewards and punishments in the afterlife one way or the other. I don't think so. Let's just say he went to hell. Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Man, he, he went aside, turned aside and went to hell. The 120, after praying, said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Here's some scriptures about hearts. Job 2, 24 through 25. But Jesus that's not Job. That's, I don't know what, oh, that's John, excuse me, John 2, 24 through 25. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knows what's in our hearts. He knows what's in everybody's hearts. Just like the 120 said, you know the hearts of all. Revelation 2.23, and I will strike her children dead, this is Jesus speaking, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. Jesus is he who searches mind and heart. He knows what you're thinking, and he's not Santa Claus. He knows if you're what you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for Jesus' sake. That is a Santa Claus, a Jesus substitution song, a Santa Claus substituted for Jesus. Because it ain't Santa Claus who knows everything about us. It's Jesus that knows everything about us. Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who could understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. And this is talking about Yahweh now, the Father. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So yeah, God knows what's going on. You think you're getting away with it. No, you're not. All right, so the 120 asked Jesus to show them through the lot who the two are, or who the, excuse me, who the one of the two should be that replaces Judas. So in verse 26, we read, And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now this idea of casting lots, as I just said, they prayed to Jesus first. They turned it completely over to Jesus. Should we use that today? It is not a pattern. I believe we should follow the patterns we see in the scriptures, especially in the book of Acts. But this was not a pattern. This was a one-off thing. And if you're going to do it, you better have a, you better have total faith that you've turned this thing over to God and you and you trust Jesus to come up with the right answer with that lot. I'll be honest with you. I don't have that kind of faith. This makes me very nervous when people start talking about doing this kind of thing. Here's some script, Old Testament scriptures about the lot. 
Proverbs 16:33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So they did it in, in the Old Testament. They said God's in charge of the lots. First Chronicles 26:13 through 16. And they cast lots by father's houses, small and great a lot alike for their gates. This is what they're talking about distributing the land. They use lots to do it. The lot for the east fell to Shelemiah. They cast lots for his son Zechariah. You know, they cast lots. Okay, okay. Nehemiah 11.1. 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. So they cast lots to see he would live in the new capital city. Leviticus 16.18. And Aaron shall cast lots over two goats, one lot for the Lord and another lot for Azazel. This is the scapegoat. Use lots. Now how about the method of casting lots? It is unknown, but here's one good speculation. This is from John Gill. Lots were pieces of wood or stone or metal pieces, or maybe a, a, a slip of parchment, Adam Clark adds. Two urns would be placed side by side into one arm. You would put one urn, you would put one type of lot, and in the other urn, you would put another type of lot. Now, on, one, on the first type of lot, you would write apostle, and then you would have some blank lots, and you would put mix apostle and blanks into the first urn, and then in the second urn, you have two types of lots. One would have Matthias on it, and one would have Barsabbas on it. So then one person would draw from the first urn. Let's say he would get a blank, and then the second person would draw Bersabbas. Oh, so Bersabbas will not be an apostle. Or let's say the first in the first urn, you picked up uh, something, and it said apostle. Second urn, you picked up a lot, and it, and, it, and it said Matthias. Oh, Matthias will now be an apostle. That way there can't be any skullduggery and manipulation because it's too hard to figure out who's going to. you got two urns, and so there's less chance that somebody can rig this, the lot. Adam Clark said that some people say it was rather a Democratic, major, Democratic majority ballot and not a lot as we understand it. And, and when, it, well, I don't know. He says that he was numbered with 11 apostles. Jameson Fawcett Brown says numbers means voted in by general suffrage, which doesn't sound like lot. But of course, well, that's an argument that, saying it's, that says it wasn't lots. I suspect it's people trying to take the onus of the early apostles gambling to see who the next apostle would be. Of course, they weren't gambling, but it sounds like gambling. And so, you know, some super spiritual, pious type commentators might have said, we got to get past that. Let's, let's, let's try to say numbered means cast a democratic vote. At any rate, it doesn't really matter. The point is God chose Matthias, and he is now one of the apostles. And we have finished chapter 1, and we're getting ready to go to chapter 2. And the Holy Spirit falls one of the... Great events of salvation history, right up there with the crucifixion, the resurrection, and now Pentecost. Hope you stay tuned for that audio, and hope you enjoyed this one.